Hello, everyone. All right, Second Kings, chapter one through thirteen. Wow! Did anybody actually read through it? Good. Yeah. Good. Um, some. I. You know. You're like I usually read through the chapters, but this week I tried and I couldn't. I would understand. So I had set aside a block of time to study, and I severely underestimated how long it would take me just to read through it before I sat down and did anything else. <laughs> and I'm a, well, at least when it comes to Bible, I'm a very slow reader. It took me maybe three hours to get through this because I'm just <laughs> trudging through. So it was a, it was a bear. So tonight you have the great privilege of letting me summarize it for you in hopefully less than two hours. Okay. I'm teasing. <laughs> or am I? Second Kings uh, 1. <laughs> Life is a whirlwind, isn't it? Anybody with me on the whirlwind part of life? It just, sometimes down is up and up is down and you're not even sure which is left you think it's left but it's actually down and the right is up and it can just really cycle you in a way that you're disoriented maybe you're moving out of state and moving is always a it's a whirlwind of an experience you're packing boxes and you don't know where things are and you move locations and even if it's just across the street it can be hectic Maybe you have kids that don't sleep in their own beds yet. I'm talking to myself. (laughs) It can be a whirlwind uh, every morning. Wait, what day is it? (laughs) I woke up five times. Is it really morning? (laughs) Um, You may have to adopt teenage granddaughters. Uh, Life can be a whirlwind. And maybe it's moving fast. Maybe it's moving slow. Maybe you can't keep chaos out of your life but it just goes and and in various ways we all can feel that whirlwind experience that's why we need solid ground for all the ups and downs we will go through we need it we need some sort of grounding that regardless of which way the world was just tilted regardless if some some mean force of life thought that you were a salt shaker and just let you have it regardless of what has been going on there's still a solid ground that was unmoved we need something like that so that whether we're here or there or anywhere we can feel like there's one place that's holding the center together. That's the center of gravity. One thing that at least keeps the cosmos from spinning into oblivion. That solid ground we need. And do you have it? Are you grounded? Do you have a solid ground? And if you do, what does it look like? If you don't, what are you looking for? What do you need? I want you to look with me at 2 Kings chapter 1. Verse 1, because it gets right into chaos. After the death of Ahab, who was, by the way, perhaps the worst king in Israel's history, Moab rebelled against Israel. Things are already getting a little tipsy. Speaking of tipsy, verse 2. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria. Now, Ahaziah was the next king. He somehow falls off the balcony... And he's laying down sick. That's a nice way of saying he's really hurt. 
So now we open up Second Kings, and what we have is right away, the king of Israel has fallen off the balcony. Now, you can get really creative and come up with a lot of great stories about why he fell off the balcony and go crazy. But the bottom line is it doesn't tell us because the point is that this is really symbolic of what's happening through the rest of the book. Is that Israel is about to go down. It's crumbling. And the king becomes a symbol of what's happening. They're losing their footing. And so Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, falls and he's badly hurt. Now, you have the prophet show up. By the way, Ahaziah want to know, am I going to die? Am I going to make it through this? So he sends messengers to go to another god outside the country, not Yahweh, God of Israel. And so the prophet Elijah, whom we've seen, says in verse 4, Now therefore, says Yahweh, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up but you shall surely die. So the messengers return to the king and tell him, he's like, what, who, who said this to you? He's like, well, he looked like he was homeless. He wore very hairy clothing and a, a, a leather belt around his waist. And the king's like, oh, that must be Elijah. Bring him here. Okay, so the king sends a, a, a set of 50 soldiers to go to Elijah. Now look where Elijah is. In verse 9, then the king sent to Elijah a captain of 50 men with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah says, am I really a man of God? Okay. And fire falls from heaven and consumes them. Could have been lightning, could have been a fireball. Either way, it happened. In verse 11, again, the king sent to him another captain of 50. Same thing. Come down quickly. See the king. Elijah brings more fire down upon them. And then verse 13, a third time. It's almost like a cartoon. Again, the king sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. And the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees and started pleading for his life. And in verse 15, the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, go down with him and do not be afraid of him. So Elijah arose and went down to the king. And then he tells the king the same message, this time in person, not through text message, if you will. Verse 16, he says to, he's going to go say to the king, Thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. The rest of the chapter says that he died, and because he didn't have a son, his brother, the other son of Ahab, takes over. So here, the chapter begins with Ahaziah falling off the balcony. He falls down. Then he goes up to his bed where he's going to die. And then Elijah says, you will not come down from the bed to which you've gone up. And then it ends with him saying, you shall not come down from the bed to which you've gone up. We have this nice up and down thing going on. The king falls down. He goes up into bed and he's not coming back down from his sick bed. And Elijah emphasizes it. But then in the middle of this chapter, 
we have Elijah elevated on a hill. And the soldiers come up to Elijah and they tell him to come down to the king. Then in chapter 2, now when Yahweh was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So, Elijah has a mentor, Elisha, or a mentee, excuse me, Elisha, who's being trained to take his place as the prophet of Israel. And the time's going to come for Elisha to replace older Elijah. So Elijah tells him, hey, God's told me to go over here. Please stay here. Elijah says, not on your life. I will follow you to the end. And he follows Elijah there. Episode two, he's called me to another place. Elijah follows again. Episode three, another place. Three times, just like in chapter one, there's three scenes. There's now three scenes of Elisha following Elijah all around, Elijah trying to shake him. And the prophets, there's a school of prophets who are also following around saying, hey, Elijah, your master is going to be taken up into heaven And Elisha says, shh, keep it on the down low. Well, finally, if the time has come, and they're at the Jordan River, in verse 7, 50 men of the sons of prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak. I'm just going to say old Elijah and young Elisha, so we don't, they sound so similar audibly, right? So uh, then old Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water and the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. That's pretty cool. Magic cloak just moves the water across. When they had crossed, old Elijah said to young Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And young Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And old Elisha said, you have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, mid-conversation in other words, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. I'm just, I'm just wondering, like, what, what, what are you talking about at the end there? You know you're about to be swept off. What are you telling young Elisha? And at what point did it get interrupted? Did you finish saying what you wanted to say? Or has he done that through his life? Why do we always, well, I'm just going on a riff here, I guess. But I was just thinking, like, sometimes we just wait to the last minute to say what should have been said all along, don't we? Somewhere mid-conversation, Elijah is gone. And old Elijah, continuing, old Elijah went up. So we have more directions, up by a whirlwind into heaven. And young Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. So Elijah goes up. The whirlwind takes him up. Life is a whirlwind, friends. How do we get to the place where whirlwinds can actually make us go up instead of falling off the balcony? That's often what the whirlwind feels like. We feel more like Ahaziah falling down than we do Elijah being taken up 
in the midst of the chaos. We'll get there. We'll get there. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. So does Elijah have, does young Elijah have what old Elijah had? He picks up the old cloak. He comes to the same Jordan River. And guess what happens? Then he took, 14, then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is Yahweh God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other. And Elisha, the young Elisha, went over. Just like old Elijah, young Elisha moves out. The mantle has been passed. We have another prophet. And if we're to believe that this is a sign that Elijah's spirit's with him, he's going to be twice as powerful as the old prophet who called fire down from heaven and defeated the prophets of Baal. Yeah, we're in for a ride with young Elisha here. So now in verse 15, when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And then they wanted to go look for Elijah, thinking he was just teleported somewhere else. Elisha's like, you're not going to find him. They come back, I told you. And then in verse 19, we see his first act, and he is able to make bitter waters, really um, contaminated waters, uh, made whole for a city so that they can thrive. And then his second great act in verse 23, he went up from there to Bethel, and there were some youth saying, go up, old bald head. You go on, bald head. So there's a lesson here to respect your elders, because Young Elisha, I guess he's not that young if he's bald, but I don't know. I know, I know young people that get bald, but anyways. He calls, he curses them, and two mother bears come and tear them apart. How about that for a start? That's, but here's what we see. As, as strange as that is, these two chapters play with each other very nicely. King Ahaziah falls off his balcony. He goes up to his sickbed. He's not going to come down from it. In other words, he's going to die. Old Elijah is up on a hill. The king has to send messengers up to him who ask him to come down to them. And then he finally goes with them and he tells the king of Israel, yeah, the bed you went up to, you're not coming down from. And so then the Elijah who had to come down from the hill to tell the king that he went up and won't come back down, he is now taken up by a whirlwind into heaven. And then his cloak comes down and Elisha takes it and he's able to move forward and things keep on going like we didn't miss a beat. But here's the beat we see is a lot of ups and downs already in the first two chapters. And what I really enjoy about this is we start with seeing the king of Israel is going in the wrong direction. And he's not recovering. I have fallen and can't get up. Then we have Elisha in the very next scene up on a hill. And how does the king and his messengers have to get to him? They have to go up to him. Friends, this is language for the high place where important people are. The king is not supposed to ascend anything to someone else. The king's supposed to be in the high place. Yet here's Elijah in the high place. 
The king has taken a fall. Elijah is up on the hill and the king has to look up to Elijah and the king has to ask Elijah to come down. You see what we have immediately in the opening here of second Kings is we've been shown by our narrator who is really in charge of the kingdom of Israel. The king who wears the crown is just a puppet. He's fallen. He's no longer relevant. He's only going to lead the nation to worse and worse places. The true leader of the people who has their best interest in mind, who's actually taking the messages of Yahweh and trying to steer the nation in the proper direction is the prophet. The prophet is the true leader, the true power of the people. The king is just a fake. And so the narrator's having a great time showing us how Elijah is much higher than the king. And notice, notice also that the king sends three squadrons of 50 soldiers to go get Elijah, right? Three times there's 50. Well, if you looked at chapter 2, you're going to see the same thing. 2 verse 7. There are 50 men of the sons of the prophets. Huh. That's interesting. And then in verse... Um, 16, 216. And they said to him, behold, now there are with your servants, 50 strong men down in verse 17. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send. And they sent therefore 50 men, three references to 50 men. This is intentional storytelling to say, yeah, the king had his fifties and they were all fried and toasted, but Elijah had his 50. And now Elisha inherits these 50 Who's really ruling the nation? It's the prophets. And just to hammer home the point a little bit more, while the king fell from his balcony, the old prophet Elijah falls nowhere, but is rather taken up to heaven in a whirlwind with the treatment of horses and chariots. That's how kings get around, horses and chariots. And he's taken up. This, my friends, is an ascension. This is like Jesus going up to the Father. Elijah is ascending into heaven. This is the true person that the people of God are to follow. The one who holds the word of God is the one who leads the people of God. But the king and his sword and his threats and his parties and whatever caused him to fall off the balcony, he's, a, he's just a joke. So the prophet has the power. And our narrator is showing us these are the real kings, the prophets. Now, let's pause for a second. What is a prophet? One of the things we need to be careful of, because the word prophet is misused in our age, is that a prophet isn't someone who calls themselves a prophet. I'm prophet Samuel. Well, no offense, Samuel, but... Um, Prophet Joe, come to my church. I can see into your life. Pay me this much and I can tell you what you need to do. (laughs) And here's the thing that we see about self-proclaimed prophets is they usually come with pomp and circumstance. They know they're somebody and they want you to think they're somebody. But what we're going to see with these prophets is that they're not somebodies. Elijah was willing to come down to the king. He came down off the hill. These prophets are just going around trying to help the people. They don't sit on thrones. They don't take large tributes as we're going to see in other passages coming up. They just keep it simple. Prophets today are all the people of God. We are those who embody the message of God. 
And this is all a prophet, all a prophet was in the Old Testament, was somebody who embodied the message of God. They said, hey, Israel, you do have the word of God and you can go read it. But here's what the voice of God is saying in the moment. You're not reading this well. You're not letting it speak. So the prophet will embody the word so that it can speak to the people's lives. Friends, we need to take up this calling today. We need to be people who embody the words of God. Not just, hey, yeah, well, go read your Bible. But as St. Francis has been attributed to saying, sometimes we're going to be the only Bible anybody ever reads. We must start to embody the scriptures rather than just start talking and arguing for them. But if we let them conform us and if we start to live them, we become true prophets, not future tellers and fortune tellers and pomp and circumstance people saying, kiss me because I'm amazing. But people who carry the message of God are familiar with hearing the voice of God, not just the facts of the Bible, but the actual voice speaking through it and are able to carry that around, live it and speak it when appropriate. And it doesn't mean we go around saying, hey, thus says the Lord, listen to me. I know what you need to do. That's dangerous. The Ten Commandments say, do not take the name of God in vain. And if I'm going to start going around saying, God is telling you to do this, I, whoa, I just don't want to be there. (laughs) But what it does sound like is, if you've got the word of God in you and it's embodied in your life, whatever you say, God's going to use that to speak to people. You don't even know you're speaking for him sometimes. And suddenly someone's like, you have no idea that that just changed my life. Or you spoke exactly where I am. You're like, what? I was... I was just having casual conversation. But this happens if we sit where the voice of God is spoken. And we begin to embody his presence. This is what the prophets were. The voice and the word of God in a body. The word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among humans. That's what Jesus did, the best prophet ever. And that's what he's calling his followers to be as well. Little enfleshments of his life and his word. That's a prophet. That's the people leading the people. The power of the prophet is that they are the true rulers, as we've seen So let's look through the rest of the chapters now that we see how 2 Kings opens with a a clear declaration of who we ought to follow. And let's see all the ups and downs to this passage, the whirlwind of experiences. And let's find the solid ground that we need, all right? So chapter 3. Three kings formed an alliance, the king of Israel, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, to go against the king of Moab. It doesn't quite work. It ends with the king of Moab sacrificing his son on the city walls, and suddenly, we're not told how, but the last verse says, and there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Okay, they're about to win, and suddenly a king sacrifices his son, and they're retreating. That's unanswerable. In chapter 4, Elisha now goes about working miracles, much like Jesus. And some of these miracles are much like Jesus. 
It's funny what happens when we embody the word of God in our lives. It just seems that things happen in people's lives. There's a, there's a widow in chapter four on the first miracle. He, he has, uh, she, she has creditors coming after her. She needs to pay them back. And he tells her to get as many flasks as she can and start filling them with oil. And the oil never runs out. All the flasks are full and she has enough to pay back her creditors. In verse eight, we see the second one where Elisha and a Shunammite woman, um, he promises her a son because her, Husband's old and can't give her a son. She gets a son. In verse 18, her son dies. And in verse 21, it says that she went up and laid him, her dead son, on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. And then um, Elisha comes. And in verse 32, then Elisha came into the house. He saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two and went uh, behind the two of them and prayed to Yahweh. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Life is coming back. Then he got up again, walked once and uh, once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi as his servant and said, call this Shunammite. Uh, Shunammite. So he called her and when she came to him, he said, pick up your son. And she came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Man, so here's a woman who goes through some ups and downs. Down because we just want a son. The prophet says, you'll have one. <gasps> yay! And then they have it and the son dies. Oh, then the prophet raises the son and yay! A few ups and downs in this woman's life. And then chapter 5. Naaman, the commander of the army of the king of Syria. This is a bad guy. This is the enemy, the general, the commander of the army of your enemy. The the best way for us Americans to look at something like this is to um, see this as Osama bin Laden, assuming, you know, pretending he's still alive, or um, one of the leaders of a terrorist group. It's an enemy. And the leader of this enemy is coming to Elisha. What do you want Elisha to do? Well, this commander of the army of the king of Syria was a great man with his master and in high favor. Great man speaks in the Hebrew of weightiness. Kind of the kind of person you walk in a door and everybody knows you're there. You just command that kind of attention. He's a great man. Um, He was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him Yahweh had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of the raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, Oh, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. Hmm, so... Naaman went in and told his lord, the king of Syria. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, 
Well, now go, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So look how Naaman leaves. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten charges of clothing. This is a tribute. He's bringing a caravan of treasures and goods to bring to Israel so that he can pay the prophet to heal him. Friends, the prophet is in charge of Israel because here even the nations recognize that this is the one who deserves my tribute, not the guy on the throne. And an outsider is recognizing what God is doing through the prophet. Then in verse 9, after the king has a moment, he goes into cardiac arrest because he thought he was supposed to heal the leper. He's like, they're just trying to pick a fight and they're going to come after us when they realize I can't heal him. He doesn't even think about the prophet. That's where his mind is. But so word is given to Naaman, oh, you want Elisha the prophet? So he, it's not the throne. Elisha's not a pomp and circumstance kind of guy. He just lives in his little hovel. I'm making that up. He lives somewhere though. And so Naaman comes to his house. Verse 9. Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. He came with the whole entourage as if Elisha's house is the throne of Israel. But then Elisha sends him a messenger. Elisha doesn't show up. He sends a messenger. And the messenger says to Naaman, Go and dip in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be clean. Voila. And Naaman's like, excuse me, I'm a great man. I came with great treasures. I came a great distance to be greatly cured. And you send me a lowly servant to go wash in that muddy creek of a river you call Jordan? We have better rivers up where I live. That's his attitude. Well, he's finally talked, all the people had to go on this journey with him, the huge entourage, like, come on, man, we made it all this way. I use vacation time for this. Let's at least give it a try, okay? And so, so Naaman's like, fine, I'll go dip in this muddy creek called the Jordan River. And he goes in and he dips seven times. We have downward movement. So look at verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. (laughs) Naaman's like, uh, it worked. (laughs) And it profoundly changed him. So, okay, he's this up guy. He has this down problem. He's a leper. He has this up idea. Oh, a prophet's going to heal me. He's met with the messenger, down moment, washing your river? My river's better. He goes down into the river, he comes up, and he's now clean, and now his life has changed. This guy is going through a whirlwind, and look, it doesn't stop. So verse 15, so Naaman returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. So now he gets a face-to-face with Elisha. And he said, behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. He's getting paid like a king. But, Elisha said, as Yahweh lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. A lot of pleasantries being exchanged. Then Naaman said, if not, please let there be given to your servant 
two mules load of earth. Load up two of my donkeys with dirt. And Elisha's like, all right, that's a good souvenir, I guess. For from now on, your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but Yahweh. Okay, so it does seem odd. Like, I want dirt. I've been healed. Give me your dirt. Two things here. First, notice that he's asking the prophet for permission to take the king's land. That's that's significant. Prophet's in charge here. Second, um, the reason for dirt is that Naaman's a pagan, right? He worships a bunch of gods. And the way the pagans thought was that your god was local to the land. So he ruled this plot of land. So to a pagan, it was, oh yeah, Yahweh's a great God, but he's Israel's God. He's, he's only over there in this little box. Our God's in this box of land. And so what he wants is to take the land from Israel so that he can take Yahweh with him. That's his thinking. Now, Elisha, being a Jew, understands that God is everywhere. He's the maker of the entire universe. You can't restrict him to just the land of Israel. Elisha knows this, but he's not telling Naaman, oh, uh, well, actually, let's sit down and have a theolog- theological discussion before you go. Elisha's like, this guy's got a long learning curve. Let's not make the whirlwind too hectic. Because I can see he's already in the middle of his whole world is changing. And it's changing fast. And he's just trying to understand what do I need to do next. And so for Naaman, the thing he needs is a plot of ground. And so, but look at how much more confusing it gets for poor Naaman. 18, he's still talking. In this matter, may Yahweh pardon your servant. Notice he's telling the prophet that I'm your servant. This is stuff you tell a king. And now he's asking for pardon from the prophet. Again, things you ask of a king. Um, So please pardon your servant this one way. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, leaning on my arm, so he he escorts the king into worship. This is a he he's got a job now that puts his belief in Yahweh in jeopardy, doesn't he? It's part of my job to lead the king to worshiping false gods. So um, when the king is leaning on my arm and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, Yahweh pardon your servant in this matter. I just became a believer. Oh, that's great. Yeah, um, part of my job is doing this thing that probably Christians don't approve of. Oh, And you don't know what to say. You're like, quit your job. I mean, it's no big deal, right? But Naaman's already in a whirlwind. Like, his whole world just changed. The way he thought the world worked doesn't work that way anymore. There's a different center of gravity. It's no longer Rimmon, his god. No longer does the king of Israel pose a threat to him. And now he's probably wondering what the king of Syria is to him. I mean, he's been in the presence of this prophet who embodies the spoken living word of God. And now he believes in a different god. And he's, he's, he, he came with gold and now he's going to go back with dirt. Like everything is changing in this guy's life. He was a leper. Now he's not a leper. And now he's trying to process, what does this mean for everything else in my life? And Elisha, hearing upon his predicaments, doesn't say anything except, verse 19, go in peace. (laughs) Elisha is apparently a bad counselor. 
for. Elisha sees something that we don't. Elisha sees that this prophet, I'm I'm sorry, that this uh, commander of Syria has grabbed onto something that he knows is real. And he's going to take that with, it's just dirt, you might be thinking. But to Naaman, this dirt is a symbol of everything that's happened to him. And he's going to carry that with him. And he's got a long journey to process over the change that's happened. And somewhere down the road, Elisha's pretty confident the Spirit of God is going to tell Naaman what to do. Let the dust settle for him. I mean, life is messy. Some, we're all carrying dirt around where the Bible is not addressing your specific situation. And you're like, I don't know what to do. Around. Sometimes we have to just ride on what's going on. We have to continue with what's going on until God gives us direction. And sometimes that's not comfortable. And sometimes we don't like what the person next to us is doing in their personal life. But we need to understand that some of us are at different highs and lows. The whirlwind is faster or slower at different times. And we're all doing our best to understand where our grounding is. And by us being the prophet, I tell you that God tells you, is not always helpful. Remember, that's not what a true prophet does. We just need to, like Elisha here, say, all right, but just go in peace. Anytime that peace isn't working for you, let's reconvene and see what needs to be changed. But Naaman's got the dirt. He's got the dirt in his pocket. The dust will eventually get into him, won't it? He's going to inhale it. It's going to be in the fabric of his clothes. It's going to get under his fingernails. It's going to become a part of him eventually. Got to let people get a little dirty. That sounds really weird. Um, We're going to come back to Naaman, by the way. And we're going to keep going. In chapter 6, speaking of whirlwinds, things are just... Flying out of control. And people's heads are falling off. You, lo- you ever feel like you're losing your head? Yeah, that happens. So they're making a new house for the prophets because they're growing under Elisha. There's more and more people wanting to follow the prophet way. And they're trying to build a bigger house. And they're felling trees. And someone's axe head flies off while he's swinging it. Get it? Heads are flying. <laughs> you can lose your axe head. And the axe head fell into the water. So now we're moving down. Elisha comes, throws a stick in the water, and the axe head of iron floats. It comes up. And he tells the man, take it up. So he reached out and took it. So life continues to be a whirlwind. Things are going down. Things are coming up. Then in verse 11, Elisha is an informant to the king of Israel because apparently he can hear what other kings are saying in their bedrooms. He now knows everywhere that Syria is going to be. And he tells the king what routes to take. And the king of Syria is getting frustrated. How is it that Israel always escapes our ambushes? And someone's like, it's Elisha the prophet. He knows what you tell your wife at night. Okay, let's get rid of him. So they try to get rid of him. And in verse 11, the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not now show me who of us is for the king of Israel? Who's the informant? 
And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. And it was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots. Again, more horses and chariots come in to get a prophet. And a great army. And they came by night and surrounded the city. So, Elisha is getting a royal treatment. This king is hunting this guy like he's a king. Because he is, in a way. Then verse 15. They wake up. I'm going to have some coffee and toast. And oh dear, there are thousands of horses out there surrounding us. And so, this young lad tells Elisha. And Elisha's rookies, don't worry about those armies out there that can kill us. Just just calm down. And he prays, Lord, open this young man's eyes. And his eyes are opened. And what he sees out around the city beyond these armies is extraordinary. In verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. So Yahweh opened his eyes, the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Remember the fiery chariots and horses that took Elijah up? Well, here's a moment where you can get real down, but Elisha is like, I know those horses and chariots are all around and they're going to lift us up. Stay up, stay positive. This is going to work out. And that's another thing a prophet does is when we listen to the voice of God on a regular basis and we choose to embody it in our life, you also begin to see differently. Most, most humans look at the physical circumstance and react. But people who are walking the way of the prophet can see that there's, there's motives, there's sources, there's things at play behind what I see. And if I just chill long enough, things will reveal themselves for what they are. But we just want to react. We want, that's what the kings of Israel do. They said, what? Cut their heads off. Go after them. Go attack them. They're not paying tribute. Let's send an army. And it's always not working for the kings of Israel. But the prophets, oh, this is going on. Cool. All right, Lord, where are you in this? Boom. Eyes open. There's God in this. All right. Let's just keep going. So watch what happens. Elisha acts like a real... Okay, so kings are coming after him to grab him like he's some sort of a king. And now he's going to turn the table here a little bit. And like a king a really good king, he's going to lead not just his nation, but he's going to lead another person's nation to where he wants him to go. This is great stuff. So, in verse 19, um, he prays, well, he is praised that this army will be struck blind. They're blind. And then in 19, Elisha said to them, this is the enemy. He said to them, this is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria, the capital where the king is. This is great. Can you imagine? You're blind and you're like, okay, are you a nice guy or a bad guy? You're leading us. We're just going to follow you. And Elisha leads them right to the king of Samaria. And as soon as they entered Samaria, verse 20, Elisha said, Yahweh, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And Yahweh opened their eyes and they saw. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. Oh, can you imagine? You open your eyes and you are right there in the compound of terrace. That's the feeling they would have. Oh, we are so dead. But in verse 21, the theme is continually hammered. Look at who the king is. As soon as the king of Israel, notice he's not even named, by the way. 
doesn't even deserve the name, just the king of Israel. It doesn't really matter which one. He's really a nobody. Soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? Like a little kid excited, right? <gasps> Christmas, shall I open the presents? But, but look what he's also doing is he's asking the prophet for permission to do what the king shouldn't have to ask permission to do. <laughs> and Elisha, the way of the prophet is different. He says, no, no, we're going to feed them and send them home. And so guess what happens? The king feeds them and sends them home. Yep, the king is whipped into the service of the prophet. Verse 24. Another down moment. Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. This is the beginning of the end for Israel, by the way. This is the second time Syria comes and besieges the city. And this time it's bad because there's a famine coupled with it at the same time. There will be a third time later, and that's going to be the end of them. But right now, um, they're going to escape it, just barely. And it's so bad that if you look at verse 25, you see that there's a great famine in Samaria as the Syrians besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. That's what it's come down to, is people are paying exorbitant amounts to eat donkey brain and pigeon dung. That's where they're at. So when you're besieged by an enemy, they basically surround your city so that you can't get out. They're going to starve you to death. You're just sitting there, and they're just waiting. Like, we got all the time in the world. We're playing cards. We're watching TV. You guys are starving to death in there. They can even watch 18 innings of Game 3 of the World Series. They have so little to do, right? <laughs> Seven and a half hours. We got time. But the people in Israel, it's to the point where mothers, you keep reading this paragraph, they're arguing over the fact that one of them ate her son yesterday on the assumption that they would eat the other woman's son the next day, but now she's hidden her son. And the king's like, why are you guys arguing? And he tells him, because we ate my son, but she's hidden her son. And then he rips his clothes, because this is how sick and gross it's gotten, that they're eating their children just to live. He rips his clothes and he curses. And he says in verse 31, May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Okay. He blames Elisha for what's happening. I guess that's natural. Everyone blames Christians for what's going on, I guess. I don't know. But the minute you assign blame to someone or something, you have just designated your power to it or them. What the king of Israel just admits is, I have zero control over my kingdom. Elisha's running it. That's what he's admitting before these people in the kingdom. Meanwhile, what's Elisha doing? 31, Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Did you hear that? The elders. These are the people who sit next to the throne of the king and give him advice and sit in judgment and give counsel for the kingdom. Who are they sitting with now? The prophet Elisha. Even the elders have turned their back now on the king. A messenger comes up. The king wants your head. Elisha's like, okay, well, just wait till you hear this. The heavens are going to open up and rain bread on us. And the messenger's like, yeah, right. Like, that's ever going to happen. 
And then Elisha says, oh, and when it happens, you are going to see it but not taste it. So the fantastic story in chapter 7 is that of lepers. They're living on the very low rung of life. They're down. And they're like, well, life can't get any worse, so let's, let's start a whirlwind. <laughs> let's go see what would happen if we walk into the Syrian camp. So they walk on in, and to their surprise, nobody stops them. They open a tent. To their surprise, there's food, there's clothes, there's weapons, there's even a bed. But there's nobody in there. Oh, there's a horse tied up right here. What's in this? There's gold in this tent, buddy. And they're all going through, and they're, they're, they're seeing everything they can want, and nothing they don't want to see, like soldiers. They're not there. And then suddenly, one of them says, Guys, guys, this is good news. They use that phrase, good news, by the way, like the gospel good news. This is good news for Israel. We'd be condemned if we keep this to ourselves. Let's go tell the kingdom. And so they go tell them. The king's like, that's not true. Prophet Elisha doesn't know what he's talking about. But finally, he sends an escort. They find out it is true. The Syrian army left because God made them think that there was an ambush. They litter the road on their way out. It's completely abandoned. They open the gates to let the people go eat. And guess who gets trampled to death by the people? The messenger who said, it's not going to happen. So, as Elisha said, you will see it happen, but not taste it. And so it was fulfilled. Chapter 8, verse 4. The king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me the great things that Elisha has done. That's all I want you to see. Because, friends, what people talk about are great people. Here you have the king of Israel asking to hear about a great person. He's not, tell me about my fathers and the great kings of the past. He's, tell me about Elisha. I have a man crush on him. Elisha is the true power of the kingdom. Um, in chapter 8, verse 8, we see more tribute from a foreign kingdom given to Elisha. And then in chapter 9, we come to this moment where Elisha sends one, sends one of his um, mentees to go and anoint Jehu to be the next king of Israel. And Jehu is going to do some brutal work. Jehu's a commander in the army. Jehu is hurt, hears that this prophet comes and anoints him and says, Rise, you will be the next king of Israel, and your job's going to be to take down Jezebel, the whole house of Ahab, and the Baal worship. And he runs out the door before Jehu has a chance to say what? Jehu goes in with his other generals as they're meeting about the war, and he's like, "Uh, I'm back. And they're saying, what did that crazy prophet say to you? And he says, oh, you know the babble of those fools. Like, no, 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 what did he say to you? And he says, oh, okay, fine. I'm going to be the next king of Israel. And immediately they all bow down. And make the announcement, Jehu is king. So, Jehu takes his now faithful, loyal followers, and he goes toward the king of Israel. He assassinates him. And at the same time, assassinates the king of Judah, who is visiting the king of Israel. Then, in chapter 8, verse 30, 9, excuse me, chapter 9, verse 30, he takes down Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, finally the wicked woman who brought 
the idol worship of Baal into Israel is going to die. And watch how she dies. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it, and she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of her window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, Is it peace, you Zimri, murderer of your master? Now, she's she's citing, actually, the king. Um, Zimri is a guy who assassinated another king of Israel, but then Zimri was assassinated by Ahab's father, and Jezebel's married to Ahab, so it's kind of ironic that she's accusing him of being an assassinator, but anyways, um, Jehu lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side, who? Two or three eunuchs looked out to him, and he said, throw her down, so they threw her down, and it's really gross. Um, she falls down, she's trampled by horses, they go in, eat their peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, Come back out. Let's bury her. Where is she? She's gone. All that remains is the skeletal remains of her hands, basically. Dogs had eaten her. And this, verse 36, when they came back and told Jehu, he said, This is the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by the servant Elijah the Tishbite. In the territory of Jezreel, the dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the territory of Jezreel, so that no one can say, This is Jezebel. This is where this great queen once lived. No, nope. Jezebel's going to be forgotten. Gets Keeps going. Chapter 10. Ahab's 70 sons are now massacred. Jehu's on a roll. He's a very wicked man, but God is using him in his way. Then in, um, he, so he kills Ahab's 70 sons. He kills, um, Ahaziah, the king of Judah. Relatives that are coming to visit. Hey, where's Ahaziah? Oh, I killed him. I'm going to kill you too. And he kills them. And then he, um, he kills the remainder of Ahab's sons. And then in chapter 10, verse 18, his, the seventh death, the seventh murder, the seventh assassination is ultimately the god Baal. And this is how he does it. So Jehu, this is 1018, Jehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jehu will serve him much. And all the people like, yeah. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal and all his worshipers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever's missing shall not live. And the fervor went through all the kingdom. Baal faithful. They come in their colors. They come decked out, ready to root them on, right? Sounds like a sporting event, doesn't it? Jehu ordered... Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshipers of Baal came so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. So the temple is packed with the faithful fans. He said to him, verse 22, He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out the vestments for all the worshipers of Baal, free jerseys. So he brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with uh, Jehonadab, the son of Rechab. And he said to the worshipers of Baal, search and see that there is no servant of Yahweh here among you, but only the worshipers of Baal. It's kind of like what happens when you go to Dodger Stadium wearing giants paraphernalia. If you know what I mean. It's not a good thing to do. They Then they went to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. So they've proven everyone here is a fanatic for Baal. Jehu's got him right where he wants him. So Jehu, this is middle 24, had stationed 80 men outside and said, 
The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guard and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. And here concludes our up and down theme through these chapters. Jezebel was thrown down, and now strike them, the Baal worshippers, down. Let no man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out and went into the room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burned it, and they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal, and it made and made it a latrine. That's a very ancient communal pit in the ground that you use as a toilet. And they made the temple of Baal a toilet to this day. Thus, Jehu wiped, I don't know if there's a pun intended there, but Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. No, I'm serious, because if you look back at 937, the corpse, I'm serious, the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field of the territory of Jezreel. So there's this, there's this theme of refuse of digested and processed refuse going through your system, that's what Baal's become. Israel's taken it, absorbed it, eaten it, digested it, and now this is all it's good for. Jezebel is the dung, the temple's become the toilet, and Jehu has wiped Baal off from Israel. So that's how our narrator sees the whole Baal worship. Okay, it's been a long journey, hasn't it? Um, 11 and 12 and 13 don't follow the theme as much. You have some events going on in Judah, uh, since Kings focuses a lot on the northern kingdom, Israel, um, I'm just going to stick with that. Um, so let's wrap this up. Okay, life is a whirlwind. We're set right in the beginning. We can relate to Elisha's whirlwind experience. He gets taken up into heaven. I don't think we always feel like we're taken up into heaven in our whirlwind experiences. We were more like, it's an up and down experience. The whirlwind takes me here, it takes me there, it takes me up and down. And like, it's going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. We get that feeling in life. I think we can relate to a passage where everything is like, it was like this, but then it was like that. And you're like, I can't keep up with this amazing turn and twist and the story keeps changing on me. Because Elisha keeps doing these miracles and these things. I think that I really like what Naaman, the Syrian commander, does. He's in the midst of his whole world spinning out of, not out of control so much, but it's changing on him. It's like moving. It's like adopting granddaughters. It's, it's like having kids that don't sleep. It's, it's like having this moment where you're not even really sure what you believe anymore. Like you believe in God, but you don't really know how that looks in the, in life anymore. Like it's a whole whirlwind experience. And Naaman is right there. Everything is changing. He doesn't even know what it's going to look like when he goes back home. So what does he do? He asks for a plot of ground, a plot of dirt, a plot of soil to take with him. And what I see in Naaman is not just, he may be ignorant and think, oh, that's where Yahweh dwells, is in the ground, and I'm going to take it with me. But I think Elisha sees also that here's a guy who's really trying to understand how to find solid ground in a whirlwind. Here's a guy who says, give me something I can put my feet on. Because I know it's not going to be easy in Syria, being a top official denying the gods of Syria. So give me something to stand on. Give me something I can take with me as a token to remind me of the story I've experienced about Yahweh. Because notice, please, how Naaman was converted. 
He didn't come to Elisha, and Elisha said, oh, you're a Syrian. Well, before I heal you, there's some things I need to teach you about the gospel. There's some things you need to understand. And he didn't take him through this crash course of theology and the studies of all the 66 books of the Bible and who Moses was and why the law is this and why Jesus came. And he didn't actually go through all that. Of course, because Jesus wasn't there yet, but you get my drift. He sends Naaman to an experience. He sends Naaman to a change, something that he can tell a story about. Naaman comes back and is like, I cannot believe this. I've experienced God, which by the way is what the prophets do. They experience the voice of God, not so much studying the script of the words. That's what the later scribes and Pharisees will do. But the prophet experiences God and shares that living voice. Naaman catches something of what Elisha experiences. He sees it. He has a story and he thinks, I don't have answers, but I'm going back and I need something to remind me of this story and this experience. So he grabs a token, a souvenir. This is why we grab souvenirs when we travel. We want to remember that I was there and something happened. Bad trips, you tend not to get souvenirs for. You want to get out of there as fast as possible. He grabs the souvenir because something happened to me, and I want to take this with me. And so when people ask, why do you have a load of dirt? Well, let me tell you. We need solid ground when we go through the ups and downs. Otherwise, you're going to live in a whirlwind, and it's going to spit you out, and you're going to be like, uh, forever. We need solid ground that doesn't move while everything else does. And I believe the prophet Elisha had that. He's the only guy in control through the entire, all the stories we have gone a long time through. He's the only guy in control because he has solid ground. We, friends, need to get grounded. We need grounding. I can ask... What is your, how do you get grounded in everything you're going through? And I know nine and ten of us would say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's a great answer. But it's, it's not enough. I know I can already hear everyone saying, oh, Pastor Brandon said Jesus is not enough. Wait, wait, what I'm saying is, if I just left saying, Jesus is your solid ground. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all the ground is sinking sand. You're like, I know that, Brandon. That's why I'm here. So the question then is, how do we get grounded in Christ? What does it look like for us to take dirt with us, to literally be grounded in wherever we go? What does that look like? Yes, it's Jesus, but what does it actually look like when it's embodied? It's a great idea. Isn't Jesus a great idea? He's my solid rock. Yes, But how do you make him a solid rock? How do you stand on him? How is he your ground? This is what prophets do. Prophets take the abstract, like, it's a great idea, and they say, but now let's put this in flesh and blood so we can see what it looks like. In a sense, the prophet's job is to make your faith make sense. And I don't just mean cognitively make sense, but that it is experienced through the senses. Taste, sight, smell, feel, hearing. These are the pathways that stick to us. It's how things get into our embodied life. Advertising knows this. 
Our consumerism market that drives our nation knows this. That's why they try to get into every single one of your senses, however possible. And studies have shown that the more senses that a product utilizes, the more addicted you get to it. And a faith that makes sense needs to employ all of our senses. That's why the prophet was fine with naming going with dirt. Dirt you can feel, you can touch, you can smell, you could taste. He had an experience, Naaman did. How do we get grounded in Christ? How do we stand on solid ground in the ups and downs? It's not just knowing what the Bible says. It's not just knowing the answers about who God is and my theology being proper. The Pharisees could answer everything like that, but they weren't very grounded. Jesus said, whoever does these words of mine becomes like a man who builds his house on a rock. And the storms, the world, let's just say, the whirlwind comes and it stands firm. Whoever does these words of mine, there's an embodiment, there's an action. And friends, this is why we need to follow the way, not of the kings who just say things, oh, do that, do that, do that, this is right, this is wrong. That's a king's job, judgment. We, we, it's not our job to go around saying this is truth and this is false. That's part of our job. But if that's all we're doing, we're just like kings, the worthless kings of Israel sitting there and telling everybody, no, 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 yes, yes, no. And everyone's like, are you really in charge? But the prophet goes down. They live on the ground. They're grounded. They live with people, common people. They're not up high on their hill. They're, they're with the real life. And they're telling people, Naaman needs the river. The river will change him. The Shunammite's son doesn't need my staff being sent by my servant. Boop, it didn't work, Elijah. He needs me to press in on him, eye to eye, nose to nose, mouth to mouth. Remember how Elijah laid across him and brought him to life? I know it was like two hours ago, but remember how he brought him back to life? The widow needs to feel the oil and the flasks. I could tell her, just trust God, everything will work out. He gave her something to do with her hands, something to busy herself with, something real. We need... We need to be grounded. And so, there are so many ways to do this. And I think the number one way we often hear is read the Bible. That's good, because you can touch a Bible, you can, you can read it, you can smell it a bit. Uh, that's one of the great things about Bibles, especially if you like a leather Bible. But um, that's good. But that's not, not everybody. This isn't the plot of dirt they walk around with. It, to them, it's just like, uh, there's a lot of words. I'm not sure what's going on. There's prayer. They're sitting with scripture and prayer so that you can take a word away and you walk, you walk through your day with that phrase. Like maybe you're reading um, this and you're like, oh, the phrase go in peace sticks out to me. You take that, you pray with that. And then through your day, the phrase go with peace is like a cart of dirt you take with you. It's a fragrance. It's something to play with. It's something to remind yourself of. Worship includes more senses and we can sing and sometimes we're just like I don't know that song and why does Richard pick that one that's not the version I prefer why didn't Sandy sing that song we do that hopefully not very often but you can do that or you can just sing like you know whatever but there's something about when I sing the song when it when actually the music is vibrating through my body and I vibrate my vocal cords and I participate I, something's happening here that it's it's like 
It's like the dirt of Naaman. I'm going to take this with me. Um, we can go on and on in so many things. What I want to leave us with is, I think we, we relegate faith to a lot of the cognitive realm. And be like, eh, we'll be leaving this earth anyways. When God actually wants us to put our faith into actual things on earth, he wants our faith grounded. So there are things that some Christians for thousands of years have done that some of us like, eh, um, like whatever happened to the, the sign of the cross? Well, that's what Catholics do, Pastor Brandon. Mm, and the Christians were doing that before the Catholics, just so you know. Because for them, it was the physical, tangible, visual reminder that wherever I go, I'm walking with Christ. As I enter into this room that may have a pagan, theolo- a pagan ideology of the world, I am going in with Christ. He's going to guard my ears, my eyes, and what I see and what I consume what would happen if we actually crossed ourselves before we saw ads on the freeway, watched commercials, open magazines? Like, what would happen? What would happen if we actually started to embody some of that stuff or to have something, t- a, little, a little chunk of dirt? It's a whirlwind out there, but I've got this with me. I'm not saying everybody needs to do this. But like, what happened? I feel like, I feel like as Protestants, we've really said, shun rituals because we all know and we have the knowledge now that that stuff doesn't really matter. But actually what we're learning is that that stuff kind of did actually do something to us. And that maybe we need to incorporate, yes, our great high Protestant word of God theology stuff, but maybe we need to start putting our faith into actual object. Well, that's not what I mean. Put our faith into things that like we can use the senses for. And one of the best ones we have, I'm so thankful we do this every week and we will never stop is that Jesus gave us exactly what I'm talking about to remember him. He gave us a plot of ground, a plot of soil to walk into our whirlwind of the world experiences with. Rather than saying, just remember the cross, he gave us bread, something he knew every civilization would have forever. And he gave us wine. I just got really uncomfortable, I guess. He gave us juice. He gave us something to consume. And we do the grape juice, right? And this is something that we get to taste. You get to feel. You get to smell. You even hear your neighbor crunching on that wafer or sipping the cup. This is sensory. Jesus knew what he's doing when he called us to the table. And we get to do that. And I think it can become habitual and like whatever. We need to stop and say, this is me being named and asking for two donkey loads of dirt to go with me into my week. Okay, we need solid ground for the highs and lows, the ups and the downs. What is yours? And is your faith grounded? Does your faith make sense? Jesus, we ask for your grace to go with us.